Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy Marty here to introduce this week's sponsor. This week's episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store for the last two years and the first P2P finance app to let you freaks buy Bitcoin. Now you can withdraw Bitcoin as well. And if you send Bitcoin off of the app, you can send it to a BEC32 address that's being slowly rolled out. On top of all these Bitcoin functionalities, you can join the Cash App Boost program, which allows you to get a personalized debit card and you go to merchants that are associated with the Boost program like Chipotle, DoorDash, Whole Foods, any local coffee shop to get money back when you're shopping there. Um, so download the Cash App today. Make sure you use the promo code STACKINGSATS. That's STACKINGSATS, uh, one word. You'll get $5, and $5 will be donated to Owls Cross, which is a, a charity in Chicago um, helping uh, underprivileged youth uh, basically learn life skills via the sport of lacrosse. It's an incredible program that I was very, uh, very lucky to be a part of for many years while I was in Chicago. And I'm happy to support them here. So make sure you use the promo code STACKINGSATS when you go to the Google Play Store or Apple App Store and download the Cash App today. Hope you freaks enjoy this episode with Connor Brown. Connor is an incredibly bright young man. We had a, a far wide-ranging conversation, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Peace and love. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here in one of our relegation studios in the building, uh, sitting with a very, very special friend who I met last week in person for the first time. We got drinks and spoke for hours about Bitcoin. I'm happy to introduce you, freaks, to Connor Brown. Connor, welcome to the podcast. What is up, freaks? <laughs> <laughs> what is up, dude? Had a uh, lot of fun last week. Honestly, it's been amazing coming to New York and hanging out with the Bitcoiners and um yeah that was that was a great conversation we had you're uh so you're in new york for the summer uh doing a isn't yeah i'm working uh as a summer associate a yeah, lot summer associate in the city i don't want to i don't want to denigrate yeah. you with the intern title so i forget yeah summer, summer associate. associate yes yeah. <laughs> um coming to the to the east coast from the left coast went to stanford for college you live in sf now correct I went to Wake Forest for college. Wake Forest for college. That's right. And then I'm at Stanford Law School Stanford now. Stanford Law School now. Yep. Um, so what's it like on the left coast? It's different. It is certainly different. Um, so I'm originally from North Carolina, so it's good to be back on the East Coast. Um, but it's been really great. I mean, I don't think I would be here if I hadn't went to Stanford. Because um, it's, it's a place where new ideas are welcome and, you know, you can kind of stand on the shoulders of giants there. And I think that was... Um, really good for me and what initially even got me thinking about blockchain turned Bitcoin. So I, th I think that was really important. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I muffed up the intro. You're a Stanford law student. You <laughs> went to Wake Forest. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, as is typical for Tales for the Crypts, how did you get like, I know you were just on Stefan's podcast and you got into like your understanding of Bitcoin, but like what initially drew you, like what was your background and what like you know, philosophically or uh, ideologically drew you towards this? Yeah, Weird well, internet money. I think the the big thing for me, you know, my background is in philosophy and sociology, um, and what I really enjoyed uh, in philosophy was, you know, thinking about the human experience and, you know, respecting human subjectivity, basically. So, um, I love Nietzsche. I thought that his take on um, 
perspectives and interpretation and the fact there is no source of objective truth, but you know, this thing called knowledge, just something that these animals called humans have created and uh, sort of invented and it's here and it'll be gone. Um, that, was, that was really, really important for me in kind of like getting a grounding in the world. And I think, um, you know, especially that was radical for me coming up from rural North Carolina. Um, that's not the sort of ideas you, you deal with there typically. What, uh, what are you dealing with in rural North Carolina? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, I come from a really small town. Um, and you know, it's pretty religious. It's pretty, um, you know, traditional and I'm, I'm not against those things, but I don't think that was quite the right fit for me. So once I kind of learned about philosophy, that was a, a big moment for me to sort of question, you know, our place in the world and all those sorts of like really big ideas. And I think that Bitcoin is what uh, the nature of Bitcoin um, really aligned with, with my view of the world, um, which is it respects, you know, human subjectivity um, and, you know, creates a system um, of communicating sort of subjective values. And, and that was like all very, very mind blowing. And that was when I was like, okay, this is something big. When, uh, when was this exactly? Well, I think that, um, you know, it was listening to lots of podcasts and reading as much as I could about it. And I had been interested in economics before learning about Bitcoin, but it didn't really resonate with me because it's so mathy. It's very, um, objective. It's very much based on, you know, how can we model and predict humans? And, you know, when I started reading some of the Austrian texts, it was clear from the very beginning, like they had a really deep understanding of humans and, and on a philosophical level. I mean, like Mises human action starts with just like several chapters talking about there's no such thing as a rational or irrational human. We're all just acting on our preferences and desires and, you know, that's really all we can do is communicate those through our actions. So that, that was huge. And so for creating a system that allows you to communicate those in a pure way was just big for me. Yeah. No, I think um, that's the one thing that draws me towards Austrian economics in particular as well is the, the first principle understanding of, of human nature and not even human nature, just the fact that humans are part of nature and are not as... Uh, calculable or calculated calculable probably calculable is the word I'm looking for like they're not able to be measured yeah. and uh, predict like they don't make predictable actions um, especially when new information is rising exactly every day and I think it's one thing that blows my mind about like college and learning about economics I've beaten this topic to death on this podcast so like not even being introduced to a lot of those topics is really makes you wonder like why do they want you to think this certain way and the system has to be this way? And in today's day and age, in the mainstream, the neoliberal Keynesian view of the world. Um, so it is interesting. And philosophy is actually the one thing that I fell back on a lot. Was that's what I wasted all my electives on. Yeah. And uh, Nietzsche scared the shit out of me. But I liked uh, um, I it. It is scary. I mean, yeah. it's scary to um, grapple with uh, our sort of randomness in the universe. And that's, that's a really scary thought. And people don't want to admit to that in a way or give in to that. Um, but I, I think it is important to, you know, it's, it's about being humble and stacking stats. Right. And, and so like humility and recognizing that human experience is no different than a mosquitoes. It's just random and relative, um, is important. And we can build 
values out of this world we, we live in and the perspectives we have, but um, it's not capital T true. It's not objective. And um, I think that's you know, a big thing that, that brought me to Bitcoin in the sense that we have all these objective sciences and they've been incredibly beneficial for humanity. Um, but when we take that sort of objective nature and try to map it on the social sciences, that's where things get really scary. Yeah, social science seems like a bit of an oxymoron when you say it out loud. It is. It yeah. is a very, very strange thing. Um, and, I, and I think another thing in this that can be difficult is, you know, we can go too far in the sense that um, I think a lot of people embrace money being subjective, money just being this arbitrary belief system. And um, I don't think that's right either. Um, it, Bitcoin respects subjectivity, but money itself is not a subjective system. Yes, yeah, so was the uh, the crux of our discussion. Not the crux of it, but a good part of our discussion last week is, uh, and this was actually I mentioned you on the podcast a few episodes ago with Dan Held, and we actually brought up uh, your argument over this. And I think Dan said uh, money is a shared recognition, not a, not a shared illusion. That's probably the uh, the fallacy we're trying to debunk right now. Is money is not a shared illusion. There is intersubjectivity involved that that makes certain monetary goods better than others. So let's jump into it. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. Um, I know a lot of people, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about this. I know Neil Woodfine is a really strong proponent of this sort of framing thing, Stefan Levera too. Um, and I think that this was sort of a big moment for me in realizing the, the, the strange place we're in from a monetary perspective. Um, I was in this class at Stanford Business School where they sort of bring in the top financial minds. One of them was uh, this guy named Marty Chavez, who's like the CFO of Goldman Sachs. And, um, you know, of course, being the Bitcoiner in the room, I asked him, what do you think of Bitcoin? And he says, um, well, I think it has a fair market value of zero. And I was like, you know, I, I didn't want to make too big of a thing in, in the middle of class, but it, I at least went back and I said, um, don't you think that, you know, for something to have the best monetary properties we've seen in terms of scarcity, durability, verifiability, um, transportability, that it could have some value? And um, in front of the class, he pulls out dollar bill, does the classic little tactic, and he says, you know, this only has value because I believe in it and that we all believe in it. And it's just, you know, a shared illusion. This is just a piece of paper. It doesn't really mean anything. And um, that was like big moment for me because I was like, holy shit, these like top finance minds don't understand money. No. And <laughs> let's, let's nip this in the bud right now. Like yeah. the U.S. dollar in particular is not a shared illusion that people have coalesced on. We are literally forced to use the dollar because it's the only currency through which we can pay taxes here in the U.S. So it's not uh, a, a monetary good that has uh, naturally drawn um, sort of the the uh users that bitcoin is in 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 the way that is it is in its nature is like yeah. people are usually in this country in particular are forced to use it and it just so happens when you force people to convert their currencies into us dollars to buy oil that'll that'll strengthen that currency as well and make it seem like a, a reserve currency that's one out in the open market and that's i think the conversation that people are beginning to have more and more or not even that conversation the 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 quote-unquote awakening of holy shit, I don't know what money is, and Bitcoin's helping me uh, sort of learn what money is as we go. And again, questioning 
strong beliefs and strong, uh, not not capital T truths, but what people believe to be truths in in yeah. their in their worldview. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And you know, our monetary system is based on coercion and violence um, at the end of the day. And so I mean, that doesn't mean that our dollars aren't a decent form of money. I mean, they were really good and for the tech we had at the time, right? Um, but it certainly you know comes down to um, it's not subjective, but it's intersubjective, like you said. So it's it's based on these properties that really give it that value. And just like a language, you know, in, you know, when we're speaking, we are communicating subjective values. You know, I'm you know exists in the subjective state, and I want to express that my feelings, my emotions, my you know incredibly complex human self with you, and I do that through a shared you know medium protocol. Exactly. English language protocol and that's the beauty I mean that's the beauty of money is that it's you know one of these key cornerstones of human civilization you know money for communicating subjective value and language for communicating um, subjective ideas and emotions and um, those things have been so important for humans to kind of evolve over the years and recognize them recognizing them as having these important properties is really really important to understanding money in the first place um, you know, you could imagine a language that's super inefficient. We don't use that. We use the one that, you know, over the years has been best for explaining and describing and communicating, expressing how we feel. And, um, you know, if a new language came up that allowed people to express themselves better, to um, have less misunderstandings and have less conflict, then I think that eventually over years, if it's good enough, it would beat out English or beat out whatever dominant language there is. Yeah, and you extrapolate that to money and if Bitcoin, imagine uh, all the wars that may be avoided from the the uh, the f- friction that's caused by things like sanctions and uh, having to convert your currency to U.S. dollars to buy oil. If everybody's just running on Bitcoin and have one standard metric unit of monetary value across the planet, commerce and uh, arguably... Uh, peace would be would be uh, a lot better in this world, or there would be more peace in this world and more commerce. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right, and and that's what's so exciting about this um, is because you know, like any language that has certain philosophical ideas kind of baked into it, um, there's some really interesting studies on this. How different people, um, you know, have different philosophical views, kind of inherent in their language, and money is a language for communicating values and brings its own philosophical assumptions kind of baked in to our money. And I think that, you know, this is the classic thing we talk about time preference, but the money that we communicate with right now is based on, you know, this idea of conspicuous consumption on spending over saving um, because it's constantly on force. Exactly. Um, This is a question I haven't posited on this podcast before, but popped into my mind while we're thinking of this, like, so obviously the, the language argument, like people have different language, different protocols, it's pretty obvious. Like you can go to certain areas and use them in certain languages in certain parts of the world are more advantageous than others. I'm not going to go to uh, Mexico and start start speaking Farsi. People are not going to know what I'm saying. But um, So people are like very well attuned with that, that reality that we have with languages. With money, like do you think, I don't want to put this pressure on you to answer this question. I just want to like throw it out there. Like are we the most ignorant civilization that's ever been on this planet when it comes to understanding money. Um, oh gosh. Um, I mean, Uh, I I do think that we are sort of in this collective forgetting, um, that 
traditionally. And, you know, Nick Zabo's piece on shelling out is great on this. Um, you know, traditionally, we need an asset that is trustless, you know, that we can communicate value with and set, like, for final settlement between people. And then we also have debt instruments for people that we can trust and that they're ongoing relationships. Um, and both have been very, very important. And it's sort of this weird historical anomaly we find ourselves in where we don't have a trustless asset for final settlement, but even our monetary base is a debt asset and we're forced to communicate with a debt asset. And what does that mean? I mean, that comes with um, a lot of the, the bubbles we're seeing right now. Like our student loan industry exists so solely because there's all these students that are just given cheap debt and then there's an industry right there to take it off their hands as soon as they walk in the door. Um, well, it's not even an industry, it's the government. Exactly. And, and there's, and, and then that has, you know, a ripple effect throughout the economy. Then you have, you know, I'm seeing it in law school, right? I'm super lucky to go to a good law school because law school in large part is just a big um, scam in a ways. Uh, so many law schools, you know, half the, cool, half the kids pass the bar it's incredibly expensive, um, but people are sold on the idea that you know you get the funding and you can go to law school and you're given loans that they don't care if you're gonna actually be able to pay them back or not. And so you have entire cottage industries of terrible law schools just pitching people on that dream, knowing that they can get access to debt that um you know will be good for that that school in the short term. So yeah, so that's the short term. Uh, sort of vig is, oh yeah I get to go to law school quote unquote maybe I'll, I'll get out and get out a good firm and get a good salary enough to pay back this hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt but the long term implications are we're seeing it unfold here in the United States but it's more pronounced in Japan I know this because I went over the stats uh, about a month ago Japan's birth rates falling very low because I believe there was a there was a, a survey they went out in Japan it said uh, something like 89% of millennials in Japan are afraid to start with, like, don't, aren't even thinking of having kids because of their economic situation. And you can easily see that um, situation beginning to bubble up here in the States, too, with the college debt problem and uh, like kids our age and a few years above us and below us getting out of college and delaying family formation um, because they're in too much debt. It's expensive to have kids and think about while you're paying back the immense amount of debt that you're in from school just years out to think about bringing somebody into this world and having to pay for, for their debt for the next 18 years is, uh, is definitely daunting for a lot of people right now. But these are the types of ripple effects that you're alluding to. It's, uh, it's uh, a slow generation. It takes a generation, probably, generational mm -hmm. decline of, of family formation that, I mean, I'm not going to say that the birth rate is going to fall to a point where like we're not going to be able to have like a growing economy, but mm -hmm. it is getting to a point where people aren't having kids because they don't, they have too much debt and don't make enough money. Yeah. Sorry for that rant. No, no, it's, it's, it's causing a lot of frustration and, and you know, this is no surprise, but because of the situation we find ourselves in political anger is just, you know, at crazy levels right now. Everyone on both sides are just so angry. And I think, you know, a lot of that comes down to monetary problems, but I don't think many people realize that it's, it's a very difficult thing because people feel like there's something wrong. The average person, uh, I think feels that they're getting poor. They feel like their money isn't going as far. They feel like something at, at the foundation is kind of cracked. And I think that explains 
sort of the extreme responses we're seeing in politics. Um, and I think it comes down to, you know, monetary problems. And I think Bitcoin gives people a voice to sort of express that frustration uh, that's better than looking to the same places that caused the problem to try to fix it. Yeah, no, and it's um, it's not even people beginning to feel poor and like worse off. Like that's been happening mm-hmm. slowly but surely for a while. Like I think it's gotten to a point where people feel like somebody's actively working against them to keep them down, to keep them treading water. And that's like you talk to a lot of people, and that's what it seems like they're just treading water, paycheck to paycheck, trying to stay afloat. No, that's um, exactly right. And and I think that this comes down, you know, there's there's a lot of anti-corporate sentiment. There's a lot of, you know, businessmen are evil. Um, and I think that comes from, you know, if the problem is monetary, you feel like you're getting screwed over when prices get more expensive. But you don't necessarily know who's screwing you over. Um, it, it's something I never really thought about until I learned about Bitcoin. But, you know, if, if something gets more expensive, you think, oh, my gosh, this company, like, they're just trying to rob me. They're just, you know, their prices keep going up. And I think it's easy to immediately blame corporate actors because of that um, when really it's a problem of, of money and incentives. And what happens when you have cheap money or easy money, um, then naturally the incentives are going to be aligned in a way that make it harder for the everyday individual to get along when, you know, cost of housing, cost of healthcare, cost of education are skyrocketing. Um, it's not that the people in those industries are evil. It's that the system is through a system of, of easy money has created an incentive system where they're just aligned and making things go more expensive. Um, and, and that's really, really frustrating for the average person, I think. And it explains a lot of socialist tendencies uh, that people have. Um, yeah. And I, I actually, that little uh, explanation there made me think of my conversation with Alex Gladstein where he was talking about the banality of evil. And I think that's like... A lot, like I wouldn't like. I don't think everybody in the healthcare industry is like uh, ethical and stuff like that. Especially like the gouging, the opioid crisis, and move that to the education, um, the education side. Like I don't think like the textbooks and I think the, in te- the textbook industry is a scam. Like tenure professors, like that whole ra- there's like a racket, but mm-hmm. it's only allowed because of the way the system's set up. So it's like the banality of evil. They're just playing within the boundaries that have been given to them and taking advantage of of the system and. In those two industries in particular, like easy money for funding and then giving out loans just allows that, that waste and that, that sort of uh, neg- not negative incentive, but what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, a perverse incentive. Yeah, perverse incentive. There yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, when your demand stays constant because the loans just keep on coming, then Economics 101 is going to say that you're going to have the ability to raise prices because, you know, demand stays. Yeah. And this is. This gets my, like one of my biggest worries. Like, mm-hmm. I've, I've said many times that that my biggest worry for Bitcoin is apathy, but it's also that people get so confused at the 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 core of the problems. And like like we're talking about the polarity of the politics in the country right now. I've said it many times. Like there there it's two sides fighting uh, like a losing battle. Like it's a, it would be pyrrhic victories for either side. Like if they quote unquote win the battle they're fighting, they're fighting the wrong battle. Right. Um, I mean, because really it's it's two sides of the same coin. I mean, on, on both sides, there's a crisis of trust. The left doesn't trust large corporations and the right doesn't trust big government. And both of them are right in the sense that um, something is going on. But, you know, it's it's 
it's not that one is bad and the other is good. It's that both of them are acting in their incentives to, you know, if, if the government has the ability to give out billions and billions in uh, subsidies, then of course the corporations are going to spend money and lobby and try to get that subsidy for themselves. Um, and vice versa, if the, you know, it's easy for politicians to get elected based on uh, corporate lobbying, then they're going to be pandering to what corporations want. So it's, it's really two sides of the same coin. And I think your fears are valid. Um, it does, it does scare me um, in terms of what the future looks like. I, I'm a very optimistic person, but short term, it, it is scary. It is. What scares you the most? There is, as our friend Jerome Powell would put it, a lot of uncertainty. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, I, I think that the idea that history bends towards freedom is very true. But I see that as a long-term proposition. And there's definitely been periods of human history where it bent the other way badly. And, you know, I, I love the sovereign individual is that prophecy or is that possibility is a different question. I hope the latter. What? I hope just possibility. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's oh. very exciting. Um, but I worry that, well, the, the sovereign individual like end game is like, or the middle game, the midterm and middle medium term in the sovereign individual world is, is not bode well for our generation or kids yeah. generation probably. Yeah, I agree. I mean, yeah. no matter how you put it, the source of power right now is is being threatened. Well, that's why it was beautiful to see this last week. Let's so <laughs> we're meeting here in the studio. It is uh, 7.32 p.m. on the East Coast here, Wednesday, July 17th, 17th. We just had two days of testimony on the Hill. Uh, David Marcus from Facebook got called in front of Capitol Hill to basically explain Libra and Calibra and give the case for why the government should let it happen. doesn't seem like that's going to happen right away. Um, but before that, we had Munchen come out earlier this week uh, against Libra and uh, negative things about con- about Bitcoin as well, but overall positive about Bitcoin, I think, because uh, I think it was overall positive with him. Then uh, you had Trump's tweet, which was Bitcoin is bad, just straight up, and then... Before that, you had Powell's testimony, which, uh, in which he called Bitcoin a, a digital store of value, like gold, which I thought was very positive. So this week in particular, um, you're talking about, you alluded to that power, like the power system. And I thought today, out of the last seven days, was the most powerful because you saw, uh, we saw uh, people like uh, Peter McHenry. Is that his first name, Peter? Patrick. Patrick McHenry. Yeah. Patrick McHenry, from uh, representative from North Carolina. Yeah. From your home state. Um, yeah, I got to go meet that guy. And it seems like he has a very firm grasp and is very, he's luckily, uh, I think a, a vote or excuse me, a ranking member in the house committee finance committee. So he's a good ally to have after today. It seems like he's a very good ally to have. It started the day on CNBC saying Bitcoin cannot be killed. Governments that have tried to kill it have failed. It is an innovation that we should not deter. Um, and he kept that, that vibe going throughout the day uh, in the Senate or excuse me, the house testimony or, or hearing and, uh, we may have some fifth pillars in place that, that could help uh, sort of convince the quote-unquote power that you alluded to earlier. Maybe be, uh, maybe be a little kind to Bitcoin. It's, 
it's honestly such a strange historical moment. I mean, what timeline are we on right now? <laughs> what is this? Is this real? I have no idea. Everything in the past week, it just feels like, you know, one second we're memeing on Twitter and then all of a sudden things got really serious. Um, the impromptu meeting about cryptocurrency. Shit coins got mentioned in fucking the United States. It was a Congress or the House of Representatives. I think it was the House yeah. of Reps today. Like in the House yeah. of Representatives, shit coins is now in the history. Like it's in the, in the notes in, in the U.S. government in D.C. Yeah, shout out to Meltem. Shout out to Meltem DeMoris. Did it, and that whole paddle joined her. I mean, I thought everybody was pretty... Yeah. I don't think everybody was, I like guess, staunch Bitcoiner, but I think they did a good job at shitting on Libra. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's such an incredible uh, juxtaposition. We have, like, the ultimate punching bag of, you know, Facebook plus all the bankers that people hate against Bitcoin. <laughs> I mean, we really couldn't ask for a better enemy, in a way. Um, but I guess this goes back to what I'm saying, which is, like, it's not an, like, it... What scares me is that Bitcoin is not necessarily inevitable and that we have to fight for it. And that if we don't do it, um, there is a, like, I don't think Libra is something to be taken lightly. Um, because if they do manage to do this well and we don't succeed, I mean, I could, uh, it's scary to think that, you know, this system of fiat currencies and maybe Libra rebalances so. You know, the dollar is not even a large part of its holdings. Um, but, you know, maybe this whole show goes on for another 50 years. And maybe we look something more like China in terms of financial surveillance and things like that. I mean, there's really big stakes here. That's the crossroads we're at, right? I mean, yeah. you either go to a Bitcoin or Bitcoin-like future or we have this slow drift towards China's towards China's complete pan, digital panopticon. Um, freaks. Like whether you know it or not, like <laughs> even here in the United States, we're on that slow drift towards that inevitable future. Like at my CIO at my uh, when I worked at the Managed Futures Fund, Dimitri, I've said this story before. But he looked me in the eyes. He immigrated to the U.S. in '94, and he looked me in the eyes in 2012 and said, "Marty, this country is turning more and more into the Soviet Union that I ran away from every day. Just be aware. Like just is, be aware." Is that a and little Russian accent you got yeah, going on? Was that good? That was pretty good. All right, good. good um, but no, it's uh, <laughs> people get complacent and they don't realize they're part of a slow drift. And that's why I have this podcast, the newsletter. Like I feel compelled to, like you said, fight for it. it and my my fight is via words and, and on paper or, or not on paper, on, on the internet and, and uh, spoken words over the internet as well. Um, but yeah, we have to fight for it. How do you wake people up to fight for it? Like we were saying earlier, people don't even know what the core of their problems are, we would argue it's it's the money and how do we get people to focus on the money um, and then realize Bitcoin is, is probably a good scapegoat. Not even a scapegoat, it's an escape pod, if you will. Uh, it's hard, man. It, it's really hard. And I think that um, <laughs> the next few years are going to be very, very interesting um, because right now, when, when you try to talk to someone about Bitcoin, you know, you have to explain the macro landscape. Like, Bitcoin feels like a solution looking for a problem until you realize this very, very strange historical moment we're at where monetary systems have no room, they have no leverage, they have, you know, interest rates at all-time lows, negative interest rates. I mean, we basically blew it out in 2008 trying to save the system, and now I don't know what happens next. Um, so... It's terrifying, but it's also very 
um, hopeful for me in, in the sense that um, I'm hoping that if something, when, when whatever monetary problems we're looking at in the future actually become the present, um, I think that that will be a really big moment for people to realize because, you know, that's when people are willing to question their ideology, question, you know, their everyday beliefs. And, and I think that's why Bitcoin is really difficult um, to talk to people about and why people literally think you're a crazy person talking about Bitcoin um, because everything seems fine right now. You know, we're like in the suspended moment where you jump out the window and you haven't hit the ground yet and you're like, oh, everything's fine. Um, and so, well, let me interject yeah, here. Let's, let's jump into your own story. You very learned man, learned gentleman, went to Wake Forest University, <laughs> studying law at Stanford, coming from North Carolina. Uh, you and your family, you're telling me this last week, have been, been sort of the, the crutch of information in your family for years. Oh, we'll go ask Connor about it. Like he's got to be an expert on this. And then as soon as you come out as a Bitcoiner, you're labeled as a kook, a crazy, <laughs> a loon. So what was that like? It, it's It's been a weird past year, honestly, because, you know, I come from this teeny tiny town, first person in my family to go to college. And, you know, I felt like growing up, I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's Connor. Like, he's doing well in life. Like, he's he's leaving the small town for the big city type thing. Um, and then I get into Bitcoin. They're like, oh, no. Like, what happened to him? We lost him. You joined the Church of Scientology. <laughs> Um, and, and that's, it's a really weird thing for family members to view you differently, to view you like something happened to you. Um, and you know, like it, it, it's a strange thing to lose credibility within your family because of something you believe in. And, um, what was your, have they turned a corner at all at this point? Um, some of them have, I think, um, it actually was, so my direct family, um, are super supportive. Uh, it's more my extended family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually okay. Same with me. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I, th- I think it's a really weird thing because when you criticize Bitcoin, when you, you know, say things that make you a no coiner, you're in a really tough psychological state because when you watch it go up, are you going to be a hypocrite? Are you going to buy in? You know, if, if someone told you, Hey, I think 3000 is looking good. Like you should, consider just you know enough to that you feel comfortable with and then it goes up to 10,000 you're like oh my god I can't buy now it's too painful and then I mean it, it becomes this like really like harmful psychological circle you find yourself in if you make yourself an enemy of bitcoin because it's just going to keep getting more painful until you finally capitulate it's not <laughs> even an enemy of bitcoin if you just deny the uh the basically what we would argue are descriptive personality traits of Bitcoin that make it very highly likely that it will become a money in the future, a widely used money. Yeah. Um, you don't even have to necessarily be an enemy, just not having your mind open to the possibility that it uh, has these attributes and, and can fulfill that role leaves a lot of people in the dust. And yeah, it's like a lot of people talk about like people are going to be angry at Bitcoiners if Bitcoin ever takes over. And I hope not. I th- I mean, you know, if we're talking crazy hyper Bitcoinization, um, dollar denominated debts aren't gonna be a thing anymore. Yeah. Um so I think that that's actually something that's pretty hopeful. <laughs> um because 
you know, we see wealth inequality skyrocketing. Um, and that's not a coincidence. That's, uh, in my opinion, a monetary situation. I mean, it just so happens that right at the end of Bretton Woods, all of these statistics start diverging and, you know, um, and, and it makes sense because at, at its very core, inflation really is just a regressive tax. And, and that's unacceptable. I mean, it, it taxes the people who have the least the most because the people at, at the bottom of the socioeconomic order, they don't have the luxury of investing in real estate or, you know, um, these sorts of financial products or the, or the know-how. They keep their money in the bank. And, um, you know, the idea that inflation is somehow healthy for the economy, I mean, it's actually just taxing those people. Um, and, and so that's why it's such a incredible thing that um, it doesn't have more support from the left. I mean, it's... Well, how incredibly Orwellian is it that inflation is good for people? Deflation is bad. Watch out for the deflationary spiral. The deflationary spiral. It's, it's such a strange thing because... What's worse, the deflationary spiral or the mining spiral? <laughs> mining death spiral. Well, if people are really concerned with deflation then and, and like these big shocks to the economy, they should be, I mean, you know, inflation causes, and um, I think Ray Dalio's book, Big, big Debt Crises, is amazing for this. And he talks about when you have a central bank um, that can control the money, money supply, it leads to large amounts of debt that eventually results in a crisis and a grand deleveraging. And that's the real deflationary crunch that people are so afraid of. I mean, so fast deflation or fast evaporation of wealth is very scary for society. Um, but slow deflation is how things should be because we become better at production. We become better at allocating capital. And so it's bizarre to think that prices go up instead of down. I mean, naturally, things should be cheaper. Yeah. And then it incentivizes saving. It incentivizes capital accumulation. People to think about building families, right? Exactly. It's it goes <laughs> down to the language of money and, and what concepts are embedded in the, ba in the bottom of it. And I think that's uh, some of them. It, it comes down to time preference and saving and planning. <sighs> yeah. So let's envision a peaceful transition to Bitcoin <laughs> with the government's help. Like, is, like imagine... Like if, uh, if Patrick Mahen Patrick or Peter, I keep forgetting his name. Patrick. Patrick, Patrick McHenry. I, yeah. I added him on Twitter like five times. So I, should, <laughs> I should know this. Imagine if he becomes like a growing voice to the Republican Party, gets like support behind him, and in America it turns out to be some like Bitcoin welcoming. I mean, this is very, very maybe... Uh, impractical hypothetical but let's let's appease it at this point yeah. like bitcoin becomes uh somewhat of a uh an okay thing here in the states and we begin collecting like how not collecting but uh, the u.s sort of has a an open stance about bitcoin innovation and people using bitcoin in in the country like what does a slow transition to that look like it, it is really hard for me to imagine a slow transition just because you know i'm pretty firmly in line with what paranoid bull is thinking, <laughs> which is that, you know, there is this myth of the infallible central banker and that's going to come to an end sooner rather than later. And I think when that does happen, then it, it's hard for me to imagine um, a hyper Bitcoinization that goes 20 or 30 years out because that crisis of confidence in central banks is going to happen soon. In, in my opinion, I mean, soon being relative, um, 
but not 20 years from now. Um, right? Like, how much more ammo do they have? And this I, is, I don't know what they do. I'm talking and to a philosophy major who's in law school now. Like, it's crazy how, <laughs> like, up to speed you are with the with the like inner workings of the the global monetary system and and the state of central banking in the world. It's it's really a bizarre it's been a bizarre path and I think that, you know, it's one of those things that I felt when I was, you know, but before I really learned about Bitcoin that, you know, this is so complex. I I can't really understand it. Um but, you know, Bitcoin in a way gives you confidence to think differently. It gives you confidence to question the authority of these big figures. And it, another um, really crazy moment, um, it was in that same class that I mentioned earlier where we had you know, big people in finance and, and banking come in and talk to us. And one was Kevin Warsh, who is the, Fed, the governor of the Federal Reserve in 2008. And he talked about his experience, you know, because he was the presiding governor of the Fed during QE during the very first QE. And, you know, you expect them to say, yes, it's something we studied for months and we we uh, projected years in the future and we think this is a really good policy. No, it was Tim Geithner made a phone call and said, we need to fucking do this right now. It was, he said it was a few people in a room. They talked about it for like an hour one afternoon. And things were in a free fall and they felt that they had to do something. And so they announced that day quantitative easing and they did not think through ramifications and he was not comfortable with it personally um and he was like you know we never expected it to be that large and we didn't expect every other country in the world to do the same thing we did and we didn't expect it to happen a second time or a third time and now possibly a fourth time That's definitely exactly a fourth right. time actually yeah. and and that was a big moment for me i was like oh my god this is the guy who was in charge who was saying that there wasn't some master calculation. One of the 12 people pulling the levers at that Fed meeting it's has come out and said, we had no idea what we were doing. And did it in haste. I mean, this is... Yeah. And this is what drove me towards Bitcoin in particular. Like, I was senior high school, fall of 08, taking an economics elective, and just so happened to have a teacher who was like, this is all bullshit. Like, let's go through TARP. Let's follow what they're saying. This is not going to work out. And then you continue that journey... Uh, you follow the Fed, they hit these projections. The one, the one thing they were like, oh yeah, we'll never monetize the debt. They're monetizing the debt now. They're, they're not following up on any of their promises or any of the targets that they set for themselves, the projections that they set. Um, and, and then the, the quote unquote good KPIs that are being hit, like unemployment, um, uh, CPI and stuff like that. Those are manipulated beyond belief. Like, uh, yeah, people, people harp on unemployment, but nobody talks about participation rate. Like these are, these are things that like are hidden through statistics. Like, and it's disgusting to an extent. Yeah. And what does it mean that we need full employment? I mean, at one point we had it so that one person's income could sustain a family. (laughs) Do we really need, I mean, even Elizabeth Warren, I don't agree with a lot of what she says, but I mean, she has writings about the two income trap and and how you know it's like this never paranoid ending. bull helped her with that apparently yeah <laughs> i heard that that was yeah. really interesting um and and i mean we just heard that they're ending qt i mean that was earlier this year that you know all the things that they put on the balance sheet that wasn't monetizing debt suddenly isn't going to come off and in fact more might go on 
And I mean, if that's if that's not validation of what we're saying, I don't know what is. I mean, these people don't know what they're doing. And, and it's and it's not because they're bad at it. It's because they've literally been given an impossible task. We don't have a committee to set the price of mangoes, right? We don't have a we we see what price and wage controls do in other countries. It it can't handle the incredibly complicated nature of the market and and the prices. And and what is so important is through a system of prices, we can each communicate our subjective desire. And it's this incredibly nuanced and beautiful system. And so when you have 12 people sitting around a table determining interest rates, I mean, you're doing the exact same thing as price control. It's on a different metric. But it's getting at the same thing, which is the individuals in the marketplace are not able to communicate themselves. They have to rely on a central authority to plan it out for them. And they're going to fail because they can't capture... It's impossible. Exactly. It is impossible. The amount of information packed into a price is incalculable for 12 people sitting in 12 different rooms spread out throughout (laughs) the United States and extrapolate that to other central banks in Japan, Europe, China, or wherever it may be. You cannot cannot calculate that minute detail into your, your metrics. Like it's just impossible. And that's why are people so afraid to just let nature play its course and let, let the markets do their thing? Well, I think that, I think this goes to a lot of the things we're talking about, which is that, you know, with the 20th century, we see this incredible rise in human standard of living through the objective sciences, right? Our mathematics and our hard sciences and, you know, I think with that same arrogance, you know, this idea, and, and I think that, of course, that's benefited society in immense ways. And so with human arrogance, we take that and try to apply it to real people. And I think that for prices, we've determined that's probably not a good idea. Um, but for interest rates and the monetary supply, it's sort of this inertia of tradition that has made us believe in these infallible central bankers. Well, it's you not know. even tradition. It's a, gen- it's a generation's worth of stuff tradition i mean in terms of what we believe and are taught i think that there's an inertia so far from the federal reserve but i mean of course we're a total aberration from from history in the sense that um we're (laughs) we're passing around this debt asset as our monetary base i mean that's truly bizarre it really is and and going back to like pricing like it's funny that people don't realize that like interest rate is pricing the price of money and stuff like that. manipulating that is like manipulating prices or setting price floors or ceilings not exactly but akin to those actions and yeah i mean i i even prices themselves i don't i think people um don't understand the incredibly beautiful nature of prices which is that it can take all this information to take weather disease pesticides the traffic jams in the ocean and yeah. put them into put that information into a price into like a number yeah into a number exactly into i mean it's like the original you know neural network type idea that you can have every single individual slightly pulling in different directions and tweaking it Imagine and it creates these ripple effects to people across the world you'll never even know through a price it's such an incredibly complex system Imagine the efficiencies that can be gained on a Bitcoin standard. Like what, how would a Bitcoin standard affect this pricing mechanism or the, the communication of value across the world? That is something that's so exciting to me. I mean, the, the idea that we can have 
um, a stable, honest base, and we can prevent these distortions in other markets. I mean, that's what I wrote one of my articles, or the, the intrinsic value article about, um, which is like when we don't uh, have... Let's dive into this, please. <laughs> that's what I was talking about with Dan Held when we brought yeah. you up, is the intrinsic value. Like, so stores of value today, gold, real estate in particular, were the ones you harped on in this yeah. article. Uh, they have intrinsic value. Gold can be used in computers, and people can live in homes and real estate, yeah. and they're being uh, potentially misused as stores of value and imagine the untapped potential that could be opened up if they were just put to productive use. No, it's, it's so crazy and exciting um, that we have this like pure vehicle for communicating our time and energy and storing that safely. Um, and, and you know, we think that it's natural for people to store their time in these things um, because that's all we're used to. But really, I mean, we're taking very important commodities off the market um, just because we need some sort of uh, safe deposit box. And so I, I think that that's another thing that causes a lot of frustration for people. How did you come to this realization in particular? Because I had not heard this argument uh, until your, your article. I think I got tired of Peter Schiff ranting against Bitcoin. And, mm-hmm. and I think it, it also goes to um, my background in debate was to just, just like what I was, I really love doing in debate was just take whatever they say is good and say it's bad or whatever they say is bad, say it's good. Um, and so I was like, how do I apply that to Bitcoin? Um, and intrinsic value seen one that was perfect for that because the fact that it is this pure form of money is such a benefit. Um, and I don't, I don't remember even how I, I, I might've actually been talking to Dan in San Francisco when we kind of like, we were just kind of talking back and forth and we we're like, wait a second, this is a really good thing. Um, and, and kind of flipping that because I think it's a powerful thing um, because people love to harp about intrinsic value. And, you know, it's such a... Fuck you, Al Greenspan. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It really is unbelievable how people can make this argument. And I think that the fact that the average person... I mean, it, it goes to like stocks and things like that too because, I mean, the average person for them to save has to basically gamble on country uh, companies, right? The idea that the average person saves for retirement by putting it all in a company's stock is such a bizarre thing. Right. Uh, why, like, why don't we have something to actually especially, save our time? Especially in a world that's changing as fast as it is and as incoming companies are being cycled through um, pretty quickly now. Like, you're either innovating or becoming obsolete and the churn in portfolios... Actually, most portfolios are probably buying index funds right now and just riding that wave. But if you had to like be an individual stock picker, you're looking to save your purchasing power over time as an individual, you're probably throwing darts at the wall. You don't even know what's yeah. going on. I th- um, Epsilon Theory put out an article about this, like saying there is no alpha anymore. Like it's just passive is like the only way to really do it. And, you know, I think that also goes right oh. back to our money. That's what... uh. So you freaks that are listening to this episode may have heard our episode with Epsilon Theory too, which is the episode that will be posted before this episode that we're <laughs> recording right now. And we hope we got into that. Like, yeah, active investors are getting, it's not worth it. He gave his funds money back because he <laughs> felt like unethical taking two and 20 in this, in this rigged market. Like it's bizarre. And you know, I've talked to some of the, you know, biggest asset managers and, there are real concerns about Japanification 
of our economy and like you know this 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 idea and and i think this is something that was also pretty terrifying to come to realize it's like when you step back and think about it like everyone just the the way to invest anything is just throw it into a vanguard account let it ride and i mean it's it's to such an extent that like my brother's friends in high school are investing in robin hood and things like that i mean that just feels like a bubble this idea that you can always guarantee yep six seven percent return every year it's fine just let it ride it'll go up it'll go down that's a that sounds it's like too good to be say. true exactly too there, good to be true it, it sounds like there's a risk-free asset and you know japan learned the hard way it had crashed so bad i mean 20 years later you like broke even <laughs> yeah broke even and then going back to what we we're talking about earlier you don't have people their birth rate's like 1.4 over there like yeah. they're not able to create new families you have a million hermits that are so ashamed that they're they're not making their family proud by attaining the the uh professional level that that uh is culturally quote-unquote acceptable there um and now they're hermits because because they've been beaten by the system i would argue yeah yeah and and how that you know we can see I don't know. We'll see how it keeps filtering through. I, I don't know how much more the system can take in, in the sense of just the stock market that just keeps going up forever. <laughs> well, you just look away from stocks and go back to interest rates and you just yeah. look at the interest rate charts and there's only a couple ways they can go. It's either a hover at zero <laughs> or break through that XX access. And that's when I think so like a lot of people are like, don't try and time it. Don't try and time it. Like timing, it's impossible. Anybody who's fought the Fed in the past has, has lost and probably will in the future. But in my opinion, all you have to do is look at the Fed funds rate chart and look at where it's going. And in my opinion, as soon as it breaks that x-axis, I think a lot of people are going to be like, wait, this shit's negative now? Like, just even your layman is going to be like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, you, it's it's incredible how little people, I mean, I mean, this goes to me too. Like, I didn't realize what a bizarre world we're looking at in terms of interest rates. I mean, the idea that you get paid to take out a loan in large parts of the world is insane. And when you tell someone that, they're like, what? Negative interest rates? That's a thing? And you're like, yeah, that's that's a thing. You can, you can get paid to take out a loan. No. <laughs> and, and people just really don't realize, um, you know, what's going on. So I, I, I do hope that Bitcoin can serve as a way to kind of get people to inquire. I... I think realistically, though, it won't be out of optimism that people go into Bitcoin, but out of desperation, mm-hmm. um, the vast majority. But, you know, I was talking to Dan about this and, you know, he was like talking about the science fiction series where they know that the galaxy is going to have some serious trouble. And, you know, they see these historical trends. So they see their role as how do we pr- how do we get through this dark time that we're approaching as fast and as cleanly as possible yeah it's reduce uh, a 30,000 year travesty to a thousand years i yeah. believe is that yeah. science fiction book yeah that's exactly right yeah and i think that's a very admirable goal and i think that's so exciting um you know when you're learning about bitcoin is i think a lot of people have this yearning for adventure this idea that we you know want to do something big but you know the adventures we've been given are very cold. You know, they're Dark Souls or they're Fortnite. I mean, that's our idea of adventure. Um, and it feels like 
things are very stagnant before you learn about Bitcoin. Right. And, and again, this goes back to the, the issue, or not the issue, the, the theme that I've been talking about is like Bitcoin is a common mission that we're all on. And we were talking about this before we hit record. Like, I'm a thrill seeker. I used to be a skateboarder, surfer, snowboarder, still am. All those things. But like, I, I like the thrill of things. And Bitcoin to me is thrilling. It's like, fuck, we get to recreate money and be a part of a modern day revolution and a revolution that is desperately needed in my opinion, which makes it even more worthwhile is because it's, it's not just a thrill of the ride. Like, Oh, we're creating something new. It's like, we're creating something new that I honestly, earnestly, wholeheartedly, viscerally believe we need to create, uh, or else it's a pretty dark future. I, I agree. And, and it's such a, um, it's such a strange historical moment. I mean, we are taking part in the world's first global peaceful revolution that literally pays you to join. I mean, that is a incredible place to be. Uh, maybe that will be the Jersey Shore ad that I have go by. <laughs> Bitcoin pays you to participate in a peaceful revolution. That's beautiful, right? Because it does pay you. I mean, as it long is. as more people join the revolution. <laughs> well, not even at a certain extent. Like there's a, there's enough capital that can keep it up. You don't need as many people as you need capital. If enough uh, rich revolutionaries <laughs> join you in this path, you can you can do good things, and it will pay you to to revolutionize the world. That's exactly right, and and that's 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 super exciting to me. And I think that you know, for the past. I, I really, before I got into Bitcoin, another thing I really um, felt strong about was militarism. That, you know. Me too. And not just the U.S. military industrial complex. Like, the 20th century was a nightmare. And, you know, I, I had learned a lot about it, but I didn't think I had thought about it from a monetary perspective until I learned about Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, the. So we we talk about the suspension of the gold standard a lot. We talk about Bretton Woods a lot, but you know this goes back to World War One. The gold standard really disappeared uh, globally when World War One went down, and that's millions of people dying. That is just the most nightmarish conditions possible, um, and that was because the everyday citizen had their gold taken away, was given fiat currency. And told, all right, we're going to spend it. We're going to put it towards the war effort. And, you know, if you have a system that requires honest taxation, I don't think you have the same outcome in World War I. I don't think the militarism we've seen in the past 100 years. What do you mean by honest taxation? What I mean is that inflation is a form of taxation, right? It's a regressive tax, but it's silent. It's not honest. It's very deceptive. It's a backdoor in your wallet that a little bitty piece can be siphoned out every day. And when you have a deceptive taxation, then people can't, um, you know, if, if you ask the average person in Europe, all right, we're, we're going to need to take some of your money to finance this, this fight. And uh, it'll be like, you know, 90 plus percent tax. No one would agree with that. I mean, there, it would just not have occurred. Um, but when you can finance it in a roundabout way where people can't even figure out what's happening, but they know that they were rich a couple days ago and now they can't afford bread, then, you know, 
you're able to get away with this incredible destruction. No one on either side of World War One cared in terms of uh, the, the people fighting on both sides. It was the arrogance of nation states and their ability to take from people without having to pay for it, to, to get that consent. And so when you have the ability for nation states to non-consensually um, take for themselves, it's crazy. Well, it is crazy. And this got me thinking, so like you're saying nation states, nation states, and it's not even nation states because nation states are uh, a collective of the people that live within them. And so this nation state in particular is 320 shit, probably close to 330 million people now. Uh, and back in World War One, millions of people represented a nation state. But the people making these decisions are like politicians and bureaucrats. They're very, very small minority of the people within those nation states. So I even think saying like nation states making these, these uh, decisions is not disingenuous, but it's just, it's, it's not descriptive of actually what's going on. You have a, a bunch of crazy politicians that are represent a very, very small minority of the overall population of the given nation state making decisions for millions and millions and tens and hundreds of millions of people. And, you literally have these thousands to tens of thousands of assholes that make up the the governments of the nation states around the world that mess it up for everybody. And that's what draws me towards Bitcoin is like, hey, these little these few assholes who are just drawn to power and are psychopaths and want to get to these positions of power, not because they want to help people, is nine times out of ten, they're psychopathic, sociopathic, egomaniacs. And now we're taking that power from them in Bitcoin. And that's like one thing throughout human history that always blows my mind that like uh, the the vast majority of the population cannot notice that it's just a few assholes that ruin it for all of us. And I think Bitcoin may be the first time in a long time that it can help us ignore those minority of assholes. I agree. It, it forces those people that inevitably rise to the top because they're good at being two-faced. I mean... Um, Hayek talks about this in The Road to Serfdom, which is that there's a very special type of person who's able to become a politician, and it's not the person you want in charge, but it's the person who naturally fills in that role. And um, the idea that they can't take people's wealth um, without having to actually ask for it without having someone actually know that it's being taken away from them. Now they have to ask via pull requests. It has to go through the core process. <laughs> if you're using Bitcoin Core as your repository, it has to go through a development process to get implemented. Not likely. Yeah. And, and, and you know, taxes have to come from, you know, because the thing with inflation is you look at your bank account and the number is the same. So exactly. Everybody talks about how much money they're making. Nobody talks about their purchasing power. There's an exactly. abstraction there. We've been talking about this abstraction, but the abstraction of how much money you have versus how much person power you have is something that in a fiat money world, people really need to focus on the purchasing power side when they're only focused on how much money they have in their bank account that's yielding 25 pips. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. And so that's, that is super exciting to me. And I think that, um, you know, this puts us in a, goes back to that historical moment. I mean, this is like nailing, the what 95 theses to the the door of the church yes i mean that's that's really what bitcoin is so after the uh the recording with ben hunt yesterday that's what the the parallel we got to was um where i tried to because 
in the episode, you freaks will have heard it by now, or if you've listened to it, it's out by now. You haven't heard it yet, Connor, because it's, it's not out when we're recording now, but Ben was uh, a staunch, uh, staunchly like, uh, not anti-Bitcoin, he's very pro-Bitcoin, but he doesn't think it's going to be a successful uh, experiment in the long run. So he thinks the state's power will, will clamp down on it. He thinks we're all going to get shot. Well, I think that the exciting thing is the state's power comes from its monetary control. So it's its power is resting on quicksand, right? And so if Bitcoin is successful, then suddenly the the power that is terrifying right now is, you know, what is that based on if it doesn't have access to the printing press? Um, and and I, so I... I I'm very hopeful in that regard because it's kind of this catch-22. It can't afford to not buy in, right? Because you don't want to be the one holding the fiat bag. But at the same time, you have to give up power in order to do so. In the long term, if, if you're going to separate money in the state, then you're looking at a significant reduction of power and an incredible increase in human freedom and human rights. And that's so exciting. And I think that's why I'm optimistic in that regard and not, you know reading Hobbes and the Leviathan and like fearing tyranny. So I love that <laughs> reading Hobbes and Leviathan and fearing, yeah. fearing tyranny. No, but I, I like today, this last week in particular, it's been like a, Holy shit. Maybe they do get it. Maybe there are some people in government who recognize the, the fiscal and monetary state of the country and are looking towards Bitcoin as maybe a, a release valve, a, a an escape boat, if you want an escape pod, if you will. Um, and like, so how can we market this to governments? We're always worried about marking it to the masses, to the retail investors. Like how would we, you Connor Brown, you had, if you had five minutes in front of, <laughs> in front of the committee today, what would you say to the politicians that you know are incompetent? Uh, you know, probably don't have a, a good, uh, subject understanding of Bitcoin in particular, and and are probably uh, probably tend to want to hold on to that power. What would your impassioned speech to them be? I think that is an incredibly difficult question, but I think that at the end of the day, Bitcoin represents the American ideals. It really does, and you know, it's it's not directly American. But the ideas that allowed us to have the American Revolution, this idea that we can have a nation built on the freedom of the individual to go about their life in the way they choose, I think still resonates very, very strongly with people. I think that the American Revolution and its ideals are something that is one of the few remaining pieces uh, that are sort of a pure topic that both sides really appreciate as a moment of rejecting tyranny and taking that incredibly terrifying leap towards creating a system that had never been tried before. And, you know, I, I think Bitcoin looks at that in the exact same way and, and has those same ideals, which is, you know, one person shouldn't have control, but instead we should, you know, decentralize our power. And I think that the, the system we've created in government represents the exact same thing that the Bitcoin does um, in the sense that we have a constitution, which is our code, and we can update it, and we can have pull request. We have, in, in theory, uh, you know, separate branches of government that are decentralized, and each of them pull on each other in different ways, and the best ideas rise to the top. 
um, and it changes the nature of, of human rights in a very positive direction because it gives them a voice they didn't have previously, and it's it's based on voluntary interactions. I mean, I mean, all of these things go to the heart of the American idea that we have a disjointed political apparatus, and you voluntarily vote for those people. And, and Bitcoin's the same way. Um, and I, I think it speaks to that same idea that you don't want one person in charge of your representation, but you want to spread it out. Um, but man, it's it's a tough five minute pitch. I think you just did a good job <laughs> in, in less than five minutes. No, but I would agree. And if anything, and I've equated Bitcoin to the Constitution a lot in the in the bent, but like it it does, like you said, it codifies those ideas and those ideals, and more importantly, those ideals of freedom and liberty and picking yourself up and making something of yourself as an individual in a country of other individuals that are side by side with you, working with you. And, um, it's time, it's time to upgrade it. Like we live in a world stuck with industrial era institutions in a digital age. And I think Bitcoin is a perfect sort of precipice to update the, the, I mean, money is the most important tool in the world, I would argue and update the money and bring it to the digital age. I mean, I, I completely agree. I mean, the amendments themselves are these ideas that there are certain immutable uh, constants in our system that must be guaranteed. And, you know, those rights are important to the functioning of our system. And Bitcoin has I- its own similar set of guarantees embedded in the Constitution and our framework. Um, a- except ours is even more immutable in the sense that it's mathematics. It's not this, you know, sort of... Uh, I think Nick Zabo calls it like wet code. Yeah, wet code. Yeah, um, um, and, and that's 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 super exciting. And it's even harder to change because you have so many more cultures and people and people from different backgrounds involved, and they have different uh, stakes in the system, and and will fight to 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 keep what is theirs theirs. And it's not just America anymore. That's another crazy thought. We're talking about like languages being protocols earlier, mm-hmm. and imagine what a a sort of concise uh what's the word i'm looking for a universal language of value will do for like even like the universe like the languages of of communication right like it could even help us become like more like the bible says like the tower of babel confused us all like we went off to the world with many many languages maybe bitcoin is Mm. the the store of value that brings us back to uh, a metric system of value that allows us to create sort of a uh, a universal language. Would we want that? I think we do. I mean, I think this is. And uh, to be to be uh, completely frank, we've been drinking Basil Hayden, and Uncle Marty's getting drunk in Cosmic <laughs> right now. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, this is why it blows my mind that people think maximalist, uh, you know, people that believe in Bitcoin over alternatives are cultish or were so toxic and it's like you know if you look at protocols just rationally protocols converge that's how the way of the world is there's a reason that the entire world in manufacturing uses the metric system and not 20 different systems protocols naturally converge on things and you know language itself is something that we have thousands of languages and we're whittling them down and there's a few i mean there are um, lots of different languages, but every year languages die. 
and people naturally converge on something, even when it's as deeply cultural and difficult to change as language. So you have something like money, much easily, much easier to transition from one form of money to another. You have a natural incentive system. It doesn't require much relearning. So of course that one's going to converge even faster and even stronger. And I, I think that's an incredible step forward for humankind. Um, this idea that we initially went for thousands of different objects being our money in so many different societies. And then we went to, you know, different kingdoms having their own money. And, you know, we whittled that down even further with nation states. And now we're acting on a global level with one money. And, um, you know, that's, that's super exciting. I think it's just like the internet. We can't even begin to comprehend the incredible exponential benefits that's going to bring. I mean, it's, it's easy to be paranoid in the short term about how things are going to shake out with central banking and our monetary system. But in the, in the long view, I'm just so bullish on humankind. I mean, just the idea of moving to a global system, the internet, having the ability to access and teach yourself so many different things. I mean, we're evolving at such a fast rate. There's no telling what's going to come. And I think a monetary system where people aren't bound by borders is going to be crucial for that to really kick off. So, yeah. No, yeah, and this goes, this brings me back to, we never got to elaborate on uh, your argument about intrinsic value and, like, the opportunities to be opened up by, like, not using housing as a store of value or gold as a store of, like, what, like, if we don't have to use gold for a store of value, you don't have most of the world's gold supply locked up in vaults instead of being used in technology that could take us to space. Like imagine the, the things, the possibilities that could be enabled if you are not wasting gold on storing your value and instead you're putting it towards productive use to go to space. And then housing, homeless, homelessness is a big problem in the world right now. Yeah. I mean, we're in Manhattan right now or we're, we're in New York right now and like Manhattan, you see these massive skyscrapers being built. No one's living in them. And that's something I talk about in the article, like a third of all housing in Manhattan is just not lived in at all. They don't rent it out. It's Chinese, Saudis, nationals, just dumping capital. Yeah. And this is not uh, a thing unique in New York. New York, like rich Americans, just rich people across the world, just dumping money in New York real estate. Exactly. And and this is in in all the different housing markets. Um, And this is something that you can like, that is so exciting to me because when you have an asset and you choose to use it for its monetary purpose, and you choose to put its monetary properties to work, you're doing that at the expense of using it for its you know, commodity purpose. And that's, you, know, you can't use two things for one thing at the same time. And so unlocking that and giving that back into the economy, essentially, liquidating it and buying Bitcoin or uh, storing your time and energy in Bitcoin uh, could be incredible for human standard of living better medical technology with gold, better computer technology. I mean, all of these things are super, super uh, exciting. And uh, that's why I'm optimistic long-term, for sure, about having this sort of shared uh, way to communicate our our time. Hmm. (sighs) Communicating our time. It's crazy. Is this the best timeline or the worst timeline? Would you rather be a Bitcoiner now or a Bitcoiner in 100 years? (laughs) Um, well, it's, it's hard to, I mean, I wouldn't want to miss the action. You know, I I think that's why it's, it's so exciting to us is that, you know, we are part of this hero's journey. Um, 
where you know the uh, the classic hero's journey myth of you you start you hear the call of the hero and you know you choose to go into that deep initiation and then come back to the other side and it's it is a really dark place you have to go to in a way are we on a hero's journey or do we do we just want to be on a hero's journey in our mind i think we're there i, I really do and I, I wouldn't be here if i didn't um we does a hero recognize that he's on a journey when he's on his journey though i think that's part of it i think that's near the end of the journey um you know at the at the end of the journey you have what's called the boon right where you come like you you understand things in a way that that wasn't possible or you see things differently and you're extremely satisfied by that and i think that there is a, a deep satisfaction being a bitcoiner um you know and and the classic examples is like buddha when he reached nirvana and he is like well maybe i just shouldn't even go and tell anyone because this is so amazing and i should just wait it out i'm showing connor buddha on my phone <laughs> and, and he's you know decided to step away from nirvana and go and tell people how they can reach it themselves yeah, and it's like the uh, the parable of the man in the cave as well right Similar. yeah and, and so you know there is an aspect where it's tempting to refuse the call to go back um and, and to just stay there but i think that you know that's what's great about what we're doing is that you know we could just kind of wait around for this to happen or we can share it with other people that's the beauty of it, though. Would it work if we didn't stand around? Like, that's the, that's what keeps me going. It's like, if not me, then who mentality? That's this beautiful system of incentives called Bitcoin. Right. Because, you know, it's, it's the hero's journey that basically to get the boon, you have to not refuse the call to go back. You can't refuse the call. You have to go and spread the word. Otherwise, you're not going to have the boon. So Are we a cult at the end of the day? Oh, we're totally a cult. Is it a bad thing? I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't think, think so. so. <laughs> I don't think so either. Um, I mean, it's not a cult. We didn't have to go to some like, we had to go to some meeting and, and bow down to anybody. Outside looking in, definitely a cult. Inside looking out, you know, definitely not a cult. We're not appealing to some authority. We're appealing to an idea. An idea. A respect for humans. A humility that humans don't have the ability to um, predict subjective human interactions instead we just give them a nice pure protocol for doing whatever they want with it and i think that that is a really beautiful thing that respects humans instead of treats them like you know a curve that we can model right it's beautiful it's poetic almost it is poetic but getting to the technical side what um like bitcoin as a protocol as a technical piece of software what what excites you about it these days and what may come what has happened, what, uh, from a technical aspect, like what is Bitcoin to you right now and in the future potentially? Oh gosh. So, so many things. Um, I love, obviously the lightning network is just incredible. The people at lightning labs are doing amazing things every week. It feels like, um, related to the lightning network. Um, I just saw, uh, Richard from Gotenna, talk about mm -hmm. lot 49 and mesh networks and you know i didn't really know much about mesh networks at all actually and the idea that you can incentivize mesh networks which is you know really the decentralized internet that ethereum pitches itself to be <laughs> in a way that you can have uh, these communications that go both ways instead of just through 
telecommunications providers. Um, it's an alternative relay network. Yeah, and, and I think Lot 49 and what he's trying to do there at Gotenna, really, really cool. Uh, excited to see what happens there. Um, obviously, super excited about Taproot and Schnorr. I mean, who isn't? The idea that you can incentivize privacy, make transactions cheaper by aggregating them is really, really cool. Um, Wasabi Wallet's always doing cool stuff. Hardware side, I love Cold Card Wallet and uh, you know what they're doing there. So there's do so much. Do <laughs> you think, uh, are you a believer in, um, not the fact, the, do you hold the belief that Bitcoin should be ossified one day as a protocol? One thing I look forward to is um, thinking about Bitcoin as uh, protected from quantum attacks. That is something that um, I don't think we should take lightly. Ossif- yeah, I, I don't think we should take it lightly um, because I think that um, I don't. I think it's. I don't think it's a, a danger um, as long as we're proactive about it. I think it's. It's going to be like one of those things uh, like Y2K, which is super hyped up. Turns out not to be a big deal, but it's because people put incredible amounts of effort effort. to make sure. And, um, you know, so so I I would say not until we're definitely safe from that. And and maybe quantum turns out to be nothing. Um, But the stakes are too big. Yeah. The stakes are way too big. Um, if, If we are at this potentially historical turning point in human rights um, to lose it um, because uh, of not being proactive and ossifying too early. But, um, you know, I, I'm not an expert in quantum. I've, I've read a decent amount about it, and I think that it's something we shouldn't take lightly. But, um, you know, I, I'm sure there's other people that have much better things to say, eh, more technical things to say about it. No, I would agree. Um, quantum is definitely something I'm not... Anywhere close to as being a, a subject matter expert on in any, maybe some parallel universe I am. <laughs> Definitely not this one. Maybe. Um, but well, no, that's something to keep, but I, do you do agree like beyond quantum, we should definitely get to a spot where it's like, all right, this is like what we're using for at least an extended period of time um, just to give that certainty that especially if the tech works and yeah. there's no bugs show up like yeah if we get schnorr 100%. if we get taproot yeah. in my opinion like and a couple other things you can do like uh sort of off-chain smart contract stuff with graphroot and all that stuff like i think like what is good enough I, I guess that's the better question what is good enough i think that we're really close to that i think that um i i do want to ossify it as soon as possible i, I think that's that's healthy I think that if we want to experiment, then that's what side chains are for. That's what layer two, layer three is for. Um, state chains seem really interesting. Really interesting. Shout out Ruben Thompson. Yeah. Thanks for coming up with that idea, bro. It's, uh, I'm still diving into it, but it is uh, like exchanging private keys off chain. is very interesting to me. Yeah. I, I haven't dug into it too much, but I basically tried to get an understanding of the you know, high level overview. And it seems very, very cool. And, you know, I, I think that ossify the base layer as soon as possible, and then we'll have lots of different layers for, you know, varying levels of um, varying levels of trust 
trade-offs. Yeah, certain and, trade-offs. And so I don't I don't think we're going to have I think the idea of backed currencies is going to go away, but I do think uh we'll see a similar thing in the sense that you know, there'll be LBTC and CBTC and all Wait, these different quasi free banking. Uh, quasi free banking system. I'm getting yeah. drunk. It's it's backed by the ability to settle on the base layer in a way. Yes. Um, but it'll still be, you know, closely tied in a way that a a backed currency traditionally isn't, and is really just subject to trusting some individual. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Um, we're agreeing a lot here tonight, Connor. What do we disagree on? Gosh, I don't know. What do we disagree on? I don't know. Let's talk about your debate career because you were we were talking about this. Uh, maybe we'll find something we disagree on. Probably not. Um, and is that a good thing? Should we find more? Well, we have Ben Hunt on. He disagreed a lot with me, so I do f- try to find people that disagree with me. To Who disagree with you? Ben Hunt, Epsilon Theory. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Again, he doesn't think we're going to succeed. Well, you know, it's it's difficult to disagree with Bitcoiners in a way. Well, I don't know. I, I kind of go back and forth. On one hand... To be a Bitcoiner, it's such an interdisciplinary thing. Um, you're, you're naturally just like you have to have so many different understandings of the world kind of line up to, to find yourself in the same Bitcoin camp. Um, but I do think that the disagreement I see in the community, the fact that Bitcoiners are constantly attacking each other is such a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. And I think that... So Why ta- is this? Well, I mean, this is... Um, this is just how ideas get sharpened. The fact that people aren't afraid to critique and just drag someone on the internet um, if they feel like they're stepping out of line is incredible. And, and like, you know, I love the people that, even if I don't agree with them, they're willing to have these almost borderline awkward call-outs <laughs> and arguments. Oh, they're not even borderline. There's a lot of yeah. overtly awkward call-outs. Just vicious. And, and it's, you know, I come from a debate background, so... I've seen that play out, and that's how the best ideas are made, is through ruthless criticism and attack. And, you know... All right, so let's jump into this. Like, uh, were, like, early on in your debate career, were there ever periods of time where you were ruthlessly critiqued and attacked, where you thought, my God, how could somebody come at my idea like this? You're being disrespectful. You're being toxic. I do not like this. This is not how things should be. And did you get over that hump? And if so, what was it? So I did uh, a form of debate called policy debate. And policy debate, that's what I did in college. And policy debate is a form of uh, debate where you're, you're given a, a broad topic and you're told, all right, find a policy that would you know, satisfy whatever this topic is. Right? So put an actual plan in place is the, is the goal for the debate. And... In college, it's kind of the Wild West. There's a lot of people who don't even try to put this plan in place. And they say that it's it's wrong as a community to force people to try to put plans in place. Instead, we should think of non-governmental solutions and community-based solutions to these problems. Or even, you know, think about energy policy in a completely different context. We should think of energy as getting out of bed in the morning instead of, you know, how do we keep the lights on? Things like that. Um, so it's an extremely open community where you're constantly arguing even what the rules of the community should be. There are no rules in in the debate I did. Um, And, you know, you can try to argue and you can say, actually, you're not talking about the topic and it's not fair. 
But you can't just say, and you broke the rules, you lose. You have to say, and you broke the rules, and that's bad, because that means that I couldn't prepare for this debate properly, which means that we don't have an engaging discussion, which means I'm not getting good research skills, and that's bad, because it hurts me as an individual in my development. And, um, you know, that's kind of the background I come from, which is everything has to be explained. And, And there's no, you know, just pandering to authority or, you know, just waving your credentials around. It's if you have an idea, stand up and defend it. And um, so I think that when I saw for like the first time outside of debate, that same idea, which is, you know, everyone's anonymous. We don't even know who people are. They're yeah. popular because of... Shout out to you Anons on Twitter. You guys yeah. are doing it right. All of, I mean, it, it's so incredible. Like, it's, it's not about who you are. You can be a space cat. You can be whatever. If you have a good idea then let's hear it. And if you have a bad idea, you're going to get critiqued ruthlessly until you have a justification or change your mind. Um, and, and another thing that was really big in the debate scene was that everything was completely open source. And that was a decision the community made because they felt that discussions are better when everyone knows what's going to be said. What debate scene are you talking, are you talking about? Like the university debate landscape or is like there's like a... Like a a Knights Templar of debating that decide this. So this was kind of, um, so this is on the college policy debate scene. Um, there was a push by a few different teams to say, you know, we're tired of playing uh, this game where you just kind of like surprise someone with the arguments you're making and instead we should just put it out there and make it open because steel sharpens steel and we need to, you know, if we want to have the best engaging um, conversation possible we're just going to put it all on the internet and make sure that everyone has access so that it is um, good for teams that have less resources and also so that you can be prepared and we can have well-prepared opponents so that our wins aren't just because we have a lot of people that we can you know come up with a lot of secret arguments um, and sort of out-resource other teams but because our ideas are actually good and they can stand up to challenge and not you know play TMZ and just like punk people. That's why I was so encouraged by today's, uh, I know you didn't watch, but like watching today's hearings, it seemed like more Socratic than people yelling at each other. Obviously, there were some politicians that were just yelling and lecturing, but towards the end of the day when they had the panel up that Melton was on and a couple other representatives, it seemed very Socratic, like, hey, let's let's test out these ideas and get a get an honest, earnest or attempt to getting honest, earnest understanding of, of the, the argument these people are trying to make. And that's what I think is like lost. Like this is a good way to tie this whole conversation back together is like the, the, the art of Socratic debate and uh, hearing out ideas for being ideas and not just coming into something with a preconceived notion and, 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 and hoping that that's going to win out or you're not even hoping just like already set in your mind that's going to win out and just harping on that and harping on that instead of, hearing out and, and again, Socratic debate, Socratic mm-hmm. conversation. I think that that is something that is, I mean, and that's why after going from that Socratic environment and debate and seeing, you know, this is the same thing as open source, right? I mean, you just make a pull request. You don't have to be anyone. You justify your pull request. And if it's good, it gets merged. And if not, um, if, if there is someone lording over it and they're controlling it, then you can just fork it and make your own. Right. And, um, you know, that's something that is so exciting to me. And I, I didn't know much about until I learned about Bitcoin. Um, 
like I didn't know what GitHub was and <laughs> really <laughs> like what 10 months ago when I started learning um but you know I, I think that's just the way forward for academia as well I think that hierarchical systems are going to get beat out I mean we're seeing this in the traditional media industries um where they go from <laughs> they go from uh controlling the narrative to basically just read like repeating what people are saying on Twitter on CNN. Right. I hope I don't do that too much. (laughs) And, um, you know, I I think that that's really exciting. And and I think that eventually, or at least my hope is that this incredibly outdated academic model that is so hierarchical and siloed, um, is just struck down and, and that we can build something or, or not struck down, but just made obsolete. I mean, because the academic model seems... It's um, oppressive. Aaron Schwartz killed himself in prison because he shared yeah. a bunch of fucking JSTOR files. Are you kidding me? The idea... Yes, the, the idea that the knowledge we have at academia is something you have to pay to get. The idea that um, you have a very small amount of people who will peer review what you say that are going to be in the exact same field of study that you are I mean, I'm seeing this in the legal field where, you know, if you have a legal article about Bitcoin or something, you're going to have a bunch of law people reviewing that article. And there's no cross-disciplinary approach to things. And that's why I'm hoping that Bitcoin and things like it reveal what a broken system we have. And and the beauty of cross-pollination of different different, uh, sort of expertise brings to a field. Yes, because... Otherwise, you're going to have world-changing revolutions, and it's a giant blind spot because it's so world-changing, and it touches on so many different areas. It's it's so painfully obvious when you look at um, an academic who can only look at Bitcoin from one teeny tiny facet, and they don't see the bigger picture, and it's it's something that's ingrained into not to be able to see it. And this idea that, I mean, just the idea that papers are attributable to an author or that books have an author and they are published and they are finished. I mean, I find that very, very strange. I mean, I would love to see an academic model where papers are never published and finished, but papers are an evolving... GitHub pages. Yeah, exactly. Repositories, excuse me. GitHub repos for academic ideas. You don't have... You know, maybe you have someone maintaining that repo, but you can also just fork it. And essentially Wikipedia for academics, where you're arguing instead of stating factual conclusions. And, um, you know, you could have one article or one argument in philosophy or something that gets changed, you know, hundreds of times or thousands of times over hundreds of years. And the original author, you know, laid the, the foundations for it, but maybe it continues to be expounded upon. And you have organic, natural systems of information that are in line with kind of how humans have passed down stories and traditions instead of this weird, you know, siloed, put it out and it's done system we have right now. Yeah, no, it's in... My mind just naturally drifted towards the thought of the world becoming just the natural hive mind. I, I believe that concept it came up earlier, but yeah, that's what we're headed towards, right? And imagine the possibilities when we get on that <laughs> level of coordination and we're able... To, to move like a murmur as a society, um, as a human species. And that's the bigger picture, freaks, is we want to go beyond this world, right? Like, we, if we figure out how to coordinate at this level, 
on this planet, we can go fucking explore the universe and figure out why the hell we're here. Maybe we'll figure <laughs> out, maybe we'll find the on off button of the computer we're living in and, and turn it off and end all this. But like the possibilities enabled by this coordination and it could be endless. And, and the fact that we're, we're limited to, to the, the, the amount we can accomplish because we're so confused and so uncoordinated because we're, beholden to this the system that we're in not even the monetary system just the hierarchical system that that uh our generation finds itself subject to is is mind baffling when you when you think about the possibilities that can be enabled like everybody thinks about like oh what can i buy on earth what can i buy on earth i want to think about what i can (laughs) buy in like the the indomina galaxy or something like that oh it's crazy to think about um drew bansall from unchained capital has legend legend crazy thoughts about blockchains that i i'm not gonna say um because i think he should be the one to talk about them but yeah, he's been on this podcast and talked about them before um his his view of blockchains kind of being a planetary system um and then each planet having their own blockchain essentially um and and being like uh, that that will will naturally have blockchains for each of the systems we uh each of the planets we inhabit and they'll kind of like form this they'll coordinate shell. over differing block times and be side chains for each other and stuff like that and hash data into each other. Yeah. And, and the incentive to go to Mars is going to be to start Mars coin. Right. That's what's going to be, uh, you know, finding that new frontier is saying, well, if you go to Mars, like you can start the Mars coin instead of having you can be one of those initial settlers in that that land grab of the shared uh unit of value and time and energy on that new planet and you can be one of the first people to get the slice and uh that's that's a crazy system of incentives there right <laughs> would you go to mars hell no <laughs> i told my wife i'd go to mars she does not like it no i'm perfectly happy here i don't i don't know i mean if it's if it's the you go to mars and you don't come back definitely not yeah if it's, you know, sightsee for a few months, I'd, I'd think about it. I'd consider it. Would you want to be... Yeah, that's a question. <laughs> I don't think I'd want to go to Mars either. I do have strong feelings on teleportation. Never go into the teleporter. Why not? Because, I mean, people... This is like a classic thing we, we talk about in like philosophy class. But in my view, if you're going into a teleporter and you're getting broken down and then you know, they reconfigure you on the other end, then that's not really you. That's just a clone of you that got created on the other side. But what about the fact that our cells are regenerating and dying? Like you are not physically the same person that you were 10 years ago. Your cells have changed. Yeah. That's, like not um, one cell in your body is the same that it was like 10 years ago, which is crazy to think of. But yeah, I, I think that consciousness, we're, we're really getting cosmic here. This is very fitting for Tales. <laughs> from the crypt. Um, I think that consciousness is sort of the, um, it is the experience that arises from the physical structures of the body. And it's sort of this continuous experience we're having. And that if that experience is halted in some way, like it's uh one of my favorite phases phrases. I don't know if I made it up or like when I was, high one night on like not high on shrooms i haven't been high on shrooms in a while i've taken shrooms a few times in my life i think i might have had this revelation while on shrooms 
I like to say, like, people are like, who are you? And I say, I am the culmination of my experiences. Yeah. That is who I am. Yes. And that is the continuous uh, experience that arises. Oh, there's some thunder. As the thunder rumbles. Wow. Marty, you're right. That's what the gods just said to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so, I mean, this also extends to, like, cryo. I was talking to Dan about this. Dan's a big proponent of cryogenics, but... I think that the person that wakes up out of cryo is not you anymore because it's not that continuous uh, physical phenomena. You've kind of like ended it and now it's restarted with a new, like I, I think the actual lived experience of someone would be like it just ends. Is somebody in a coma living? Uh, I is think that living, one's a little bit more difficult. Cause is living it, action? Hmm? Is living like action? or? Well, I think that if it's, if you're... Um, Consciousness is the continuous, you know, whatever currents that flow through your physical structures. If they're like completely halted, when it's restarted, I don't think you come back. I think there's a new you that logs in, basically. Would it have the same memories that the previous you had? It or? would have the same memories. And that, that's what's so tempting about the going in the teleporter. Because the person that comes out, they're going to talk, walk, think just like you. They're going to have access to the same memories they won't even know from their experience that they just were born. Born. They will feel like they have access to the memories and, you know, they're the same person. But the real Marty would have disappeared forever. Hmm. Damn. That's what I think. You can get really creepy with this, too. You can be like, well, what Let's if get that creepy. happens? Let's get fucking creepy. What if that happens every night? What if that happens every night I go to sleep? You know, that version of you dies and a new version of you wakes up in the morning. You have access to the same memories that your body has. Well, but you've actually only like today sitting here, you've only really this version of you has only been experiencing one day's worth of time ever. Well, this goes back to my articulation of that. I am the culmination of my experiences. Like I am technically a different person than the first time I said that sentence on this podcast five minutes ago, not even five minutes ago, three minutes ago. Like my experience, I've had more experiences since that time. So am I technically different than that person who first uttered that statement a few minutes ago? I would say yes. And a different person or you're the same person. I'm different. Or I have more cumulative experiences. I mean, you're different, but you're, you're still the same continuous experience. Okay. Same continuous. That, that's, that's my definition. Okay. But there's no way to know that when I woke up today that this isn't a new version of Connor. That just for today it was the first time. And there's no way to know that when I go to sleep tonight, that version ends and some you know new version of me comes up and begins again tomorrow. So do you believe in simulation theory? Are we in a simulation right now? Oh, I have no idea. Is about any that. of this worth it? I don't know. People say it's like more probable we're in a simulation or not. It's, it's crazy to think about. I don't think we're in a sim- I like to think I have some autonomy over myself. I haven't looked into that debate enough. I know the, the argument is like things are too perfectly aligned for it not to be a simulation, but... Well, that's what goes into the beauty of human life, right? Is this the fact mystery. that it's a miracle is that things have aligned this perfectly. I mean, this is, this is like the ultimate philosophical question. Why is there something rather than nothing? <sighs> Why <do you laughs> Man... Then we right? get really mysterious. Like, why are we... Like, that, yeah. that is the most fundamental question, and it's... What do you say to that? 
Well, Why is there anything at all? It should be unanswerable, right? Yeah. That is what we're on is this journey to figure out why we're here. That's right. But. And it's a very humbling That's what disheartens me about our like current condition <laughs> as humanity is like we're, we're lost in this. It's like, again, cycle conspicuous consumption, whether it be material goods or music or. I think our music's conspicuous consumption. Some of, most of it is. Most uh-uh. of it is. Like fucking Cardi B twerk, all that shit. Fucking ter- like quote unquote culture. Fuck I that. mean, it's the proliferation of culture. I don't think that you can... I think that some of it's good and some of it's bad, but the fact is, like, there's just more of it. Let's talk about our favorite artist right here. Kanye, Kanye. West. You guys can't hear it, but we've been listening to Kanye all, all recording. We had a very deep conversation about him. I love Kanye. I, I mean, do too. Kanye was... I probably wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for Kanye either. Neither would I. I mean, he is someone that taught me that, you know, you can believe in yourself. It's okay to have confidence and that there is a big distinction between having a big ego and having a lot of confidence in yourself. Yes. And I think Kanye is a prime example of someone that people look at him and find him to be arrogant when in reality he is just confident in himself and the incredible artwork he produces. And, um, you know, I also love him for his, the way that he takes the hardest moments someone could possibly experience um, in his life and takes that suffering and tragedy and turns it into something beautiful masterpieces I mean there's there's something so inspiring about that and I think that's what we're at I mean would Bitcoin happen would we have had this technology if we weren't pushed to find a way out of this strange monetary position we're in probably not no no and yeah. back to Kanye they're like I hate being bipolar. It's awesome. Like, and this is what we talked about last week. And yeah. for Kanye is for me as well, a huge influence in my life. Cause I think his whole discography from college dropout to I hate being bipolar. It's awesome yay. is to yay is fucking self-actualization. Like you can be what you want to be. If you put your mind to it. Yes. My raps are arrogant. I'm fucking wearing Versace. I can spend the gas money on polos I couldn't afford, stuff like that. Uh, but it, it, if you listen to the geography throughout from beginning to end, it's all, you can be what you want to be. You just got to put your mind to it. Like, he wrote the best American biopic of all time, and it all falls down. Like, I couldn't afford a car, so I named my daughter Alexis. That whole song is the best American biopic that's ever existed. You want to talk about, like, our current condition, like, talk about college loans, talk about... The, the error conspicuous consumption that we find ourselves in all falls down, in my opinion, encapsulates that fucking feeling and that, that reality better than any song or movie or book. A fucking three and a half minute song encapsulates that better than any author or anybody else has up to this point in my experience. And then on top of that, like, <laughs> like, he Preach, just, Marty. like I found bravery in my bravado, like that, like that line in power, like it is, you can be what you want to be if you just put your mind to it and you say, fuck the haters, basically. Yeah. I mean, there was this interview with Kanye where he's like, I'm the Sonic Espresso. espresso. I'm what gets you going in the morning. You know, if you're a fan of Kanye West, you're not a fan of me. You're a fan of yourself because his music resonates with people who are self-starters, with people who aren't afraid to stand up for what they believe in and do good work. Yeah. Graduation. Man. 
my junior year of high school. It changed my life. I listened to that fucking album every day of my life. This is the story of a champion. Like <laughs> from like from Good Morning to Champion. There was a couple Barry Bonds and drunk dr- drunken hot girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even Big Brother I would argue could be acts from that album. But <laughs> I agree. The rest of it, uh, I think was very like you can be what you want to be. And I agree. I agree. And even beyond, like, and it's just trying to wake people up. Like, people hate Kanye. People fucking hate Kanye. People hate him so much. Because they think he's so egotistical. And he's only egotistical because he's like, I fucking found a way to teach you people how to fucking self-actualize. And you think it's all about me, but I'm getting too drunk now. No, I mean, you're exactly right. and, And if they listen to his music, no one shits on Kanye more than Kanye. Like, his actual discography goes through... And just talks about how, you know, he's not the person he wanted to be. How his fame affected him in terrible ways. Addicted he's not a good to, friend anymore. Addicted to materialism, like all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, the crown jewel of that album being Runaway, which is basically a ballad talking about how he's such an asshole. And it's this incredible paradox where he simultaneously admits that he's, you know, arrogant or whatever it might be, and and like disproves it in a way because at least. He's willing to admit, and that's something that's so difficult for people, is just to admit, you know, that we have flaws and that we can work to fix them. And, and it's the same with, um, with All Falls Down. I mean, that was revolutionary for hip-hop, for someone to say that they're so self-conscious. Mm-hmm. And that's a theme through his, his whole discography, is being honest and vulnerable to the listener. And uh, to say he's arrogant after that, just, you know, just tells me I haven't listened to him. He's misunderstood. He is. Yes, I mean, and that's the problem of being an artist who articulates themselves through honesty, honesty and art, and complex themes instead of nice sound bites. Exactly, and there's actually this song I shared in the bent today. Um, it's called "Keep It Warm" by Eddie or Flo and Eddie, Eddie and Flo. I don't know. It's a band from the '70s. They used to be the Turtles. This song showed up on my uh, uh, Discover. Spotify playlist this week. I've listened to it at least a thousand times. Not at least a thousand times. This is exaggerating. I've listened to it at least fifty times in the last five days, at least. <laughs> and but the juxtaposition of the music and the lyrics. So like the 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 band and the the lyrics is so beautiful. And the the lyrics are very prescient for today. A song that was written, I believe, in the late seventies or eighties, uh, still stands true to this day. But it's. It is. It reminded me of Kanye a little bit because it's. It's if you listen to it and you're just listening to the music, you're going to misunderstand. You're like, oh, this is an upbeat, happy song. But you listen to the lyrics, this is like, whoa! Oh, it's man. one of the heaviest fucking songs I've ever listened to in my life. I love music like that. Um, there's, I think, one of the most influential bands I ever listened to is this band called AJJ. Um, they used to be called Andrew Jackson Jihad, but they dropped it. No, there's AJJ, and um, you know they have this. It's it's like folk punk type thing where it is incredibly upbeat and optimistic about humankind and human nature but you know it's this it it really embraces that Nietzschean ideal of to really get the most out of life you have to go through some serious suffering and otherwise you haven't lived and I think that you know their music is super super positive and when you hear them perform it's this incredible um, positive experience but their lyrics are just terrifying because they're really describing some of these really dark times and being positive and optimistic in the face of that and almost, you know, laughing at 
you know, this bizarre place we find ourselves in. And I think that's important as Bitcoiners. Like, we're not, this isn't going to be an easy, we all just get rich and nothing happens type thing. I mean, this is not going to be a fun trip necessarily. It's going to be a meaningful trip. And that's, that's much more important. No, and it, I completely agree. And I like to think things are going to get easier because it, it's been pretty hard personally for me. And I know for you as well, like yeah. being the Bitcoin friend, but yeah, there are many battles to be won in front of us. Like it is, uh, it is not going to come as easy. Like if you've thought it's been hard up to this point, again, the last week has shown that Bitcoin is on the main stage and yeah, I don't think the entrenched uh, powers are going to go down without a fight. So the shit is just beginning. And That's right, freaks. You have to look inside and say, hey, do I want to fight for this? Honestly, ask yourself. Yes. Do you want to fight for this? And if you don't, it's the beauty of the opt-in system. You don't have to. And But it is something that you should ask yourself and, and really ask yourself, like yourself, your essence, who you are. Like, Do you want to be a part of this? Because it is a pivotal point. Like if we go down this road, it is going to change the world drastically. Yeah. The stakes are unbelievably high and you have to act like your actions matter because, you know, eventually we think that this is going to work out, but you know, it's nothing's a sure bet and we have to act in, in the way that really speaks to the importance of the times and, and, you know, we can't let apathy beat out human rights and our progress as a civilization. So, yeah. This might be the perfect place to end it's it. It's heavy, yeah. This is the perfect place to end it in I your think mind? so. Do you have anything else to say? Stay humble. Stack sats. That was Tales from the Crypt with Connor Brown, everybody. Hey, if you like it, rate, subscribe, review. Peace and love, freaks.